Good evening, listeners. Today is March 17th, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can only mean one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Maggie Exton. And I'm Daniel Watkins. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different fields of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you are a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up and coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or the station. Tonight, we are joined by Charles Camacho from the Department of Mathematics. How's Welcome. it going? How's it going, everybody? How is the drive here? Oh, yeah. from uh, So I live up in Seattle. <laughs> it's a long was, drive. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty far. Um, but uh, uh, it's been really nice, especially lately. Yeah. Been enjoying some sunlight here in Oregon, which has been a long time coming. Yeah. So Charles, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do here at Oregon State? Great. So I'm a sixth year uh, grad student, um, PhD student in mathematics. This is my last year, so I'm uh, almost exactly three months away from graduating. Uh, yeah, exciting. Yeah, <laughs> nice. It's very exciting. Um, and uh, I do research uh, in topology, which is a, kind of a study of math where you try to understand the properties of shapes or global properties of shapes um, rather than the kind of minute details of them, which is more like in geometry. Um, but specifically, I'm interested in uh, symmetries of these abstract mathematical surfaces. Um, and they have various applications as well, so it's, it's kind of an interesting uh, topic. So Charles, you brought some interesting things into the station here. So these these magnetic blocks, which you might have seen in like the STEM toys section of the library or at elementary schools. So they're little magnet shapes of triangles and squares and pentagons. Um, what does this have to do with mathematics? That's a good question. So one, one place to start at least is maybe you take a triangle. So, here, so imagine you got a triangle and a triangle Let's say it's an equilateral triangle. So it's got all sides of the same length. And you also imagine that all the angles on the inside are also all the same. So all the interior angles are all the same. So this is called a regular uh, polygon. So it's, it's a regular three-gon or what we call a triangle, a regular triangle. And we can try and put a couple of these triangles together. So if, so if you have these magnetic toys, you might put maybe several triangles together. And the question is to try to make three-dimensional objects that take up some volume, but they're only formed out of triangles like this. And it turns out that doing only the same polygons to make this three-dimensional figure, uh, you're very limited. It turns out you can only do this in basically five different ways. Only five? Yeah, only five. And you can prove that there are only five ways to do this. Uh, there are a couple of mathematical proofs of this. You have to look at the angles and try and see um, some inequalities, and you find out only five ways to do this, but you can do this on your own. And this is some pretty old mathematics, right? Yeah, very, very old mathematics. Um, I think they're even 
uh, carvings on stone from I don't I don't know exactly when like 300 BC or I don't know from, from a very yeah. long time ago. Definitely had them with the ancient Greeks. Yes, at least. Yep, definitely. <laughs> um, hence the they're called platonic solids. So, um, what you can do is you can start with a triangle and try to put as many triangles around that single triangle you have, um, but in kind of a cyclic fashion. So here, so for example, I can put four together, or in fact, I can put three together. Let's say I put three together like this, and you can sort of lift this up, and it comes together and it forms a shape that's made up of only triangles. So no squares, no pentagons, none of that. I put a fourth one in, I close it up, and that makes what's called a tetrahedron, which is like a pyramid, but it has a base of a triangle instead. Um, but a pyramid has a base of a square. Yeah, you, okay. yeah usually With four sides. Yeah, with four sides, yeah. Okay. Um, or five. Yeah, that would be five sides, wouldn't five it? Five sides. Yeah, the, the floor so the counts tetrahedron as a side. Has four, but <laughs> yeah. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. So that's the so that's a tetrahedron. You can make uh, various other interesting ones too. You can make um, so, so make a pyramid by forming four of these triangles together. Let's see if I can do this. You need a square. I have a square for you. Uh, actually, I'll only use triangles. Okay. Um, so let me get another four triangles together, and I'm going to make the bottom part of this what's called an uh, octahedron. Octa because there are eight triangles. So I'm putting four triangles together and putting an additional four and sticking them together. So here, so I can give this to you. Yes. So that's a that's an octahedron. Also formed from only using uh, equilateral triangles. And uh, then you can do uh, icosahedron, which is if you've played Dungeons and Dragons, that's a 20-sided die, also known as a d20, because so you had to use 20 triangles for that. And so yeah. there's one with 12, right? There's also one, yeah, there's also one with 12. It's called a dodecahedron. And that requires, rather than using triangles, use uh, pentagons. So you can use, you can do pentagons with so that. So are these special, like, math tools? Or, uh, I mean, they kind of seem like toys. They are basically like toys. What's interesting about them mathematically is that they form, uh, so if you've taken, so for people who've taken any uh, undergraduate math classes, like math major, uh, they've probably taken something called abstract algebra. Um, and there they study symmetries of shapes, um, and, that, and that's what's called a group theory. And it turns out that uh, only finite subgroups of the sphere turn out to come out from these five platonic solids, and a couple other ones too. So uh, in terms of shapes that you can make that have a lot of symmetry to them, you're limited. You're limited to these five, essentially. So if you mix shapes, like I'm thinking of a soccer ball has... Um what does it have? Pentagons and maybe some hexagons, square hexagons. Yep, both of those two. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's kind of you know what we're doing, except for it's all the same shape. Yeah, so it's also uh, you're basically also making like a sphere, a sphere-like thing, except you're using instead of only pentagons like you would for this dodecahedron, you would use both pentagons and hexagons. Uh, it's what's called a truncated icosahedron. So if you started with an, I know it's, that's a pretty <laughs> fancy word. Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. These these names get very very fancy for yeah. these what are called regular polyhedra. They're very 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 fancy words. Um, you take a d20, a twenty sided die, and you chop off at each one of the triangular um, pieces. You you do little chops, and you make a you basically make a soccer ball from that. Um, and that's what's called an Archimedean solid. So platonic solids are ones that are formed with only using the same kind of shape. So dodeca dodecahedron, all pentagons, cube, all squares, 
tetrahedron, all triangles. Uh, soccer ball involves two or more kinds of these uh, regular polygons. And platonic as in Plato. Yeah, as in Plato. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes, because he felt that these were sort of idealized, sort of idealized kinds of uh, symmetric shapes. So one of the things that seems interesting with these is that if you take a shape like a cube or a dodecahedron and you roll it on the ground, it always just looks the same. You can rotate it and it doesn't look like it's changed position at all. So as I understand it, this is an idea that you can extrapolate a lot from. Exactly. Um, And so one of the things that's studied a lot in mathematics, also a lot in physics too, is asking questions like, what are the kinds of symmetries that maybe the system of equation has? Um, I think that's also Maxwell's equations too. They have like certain symmetric properties to them. So those would be Um, the equations for electricity and magnetism? Yeah, right, right. So that kind of idea of finding things that you can sort of manipulate, ways you can manipulate your either your shapes or perhaps your equations, your formulas in such a way that something basically remains invariant. So an example is you could take a cube and rotate about the face, like one of the faces, and you can uh, sort of rotate it by a fourth of a revolution. If you do that, then you find that the cube basically looks exactly the same. So in that sense, we call that a, a symmetry of the surface. Well, one thing that I think is interesting about math is that there are a lot of like words like symmetry that we use in common um, like everyday language, um, but they have such specific definitions, um, which it's cool. But like I don't I use worth math, uh, math words every day and I don't even know. Yeah. Uh, so the reason you want to be so specific is because you want to ask a question like, so I give you a cube. How many different symmetries does this cube have? OK. Um, so then you need to say, all right. How to distinguish one symmetry from another one. So you have to be as specific as you can in that sense. Uh, and that, you know, those problems end up being quite difficult. It can be very challenging to solve in general. If I gave you something, tell me all the different ways you can manipulate it so that it, you know, kind of looks exactly the same as you move it around. That's kind of tough to do. So in topology, you're also thinking about different kinds of surfaces, not just different kinds of shapes, right? Mm-hmm. So I've heard a joke before that like a topologist is someone who can't tell a donut from a coffee cup. Yeah. Could you explain why that's supposed to be funny? <laughs> sure. It's, it's funny because, um, well, first thing is if you were to imagine everything, like all the shapes around you, rather than being so rigid, you know, almost like plastic, imagine them a lot more rubbery. Um, if it were completely rubbery, then if you were to hand someone uh, a coffee in their coffee mug or a donut, they wouldn't have known the difference if it was everything was completely rubbery because uh, it would just completely deform into that single handle. That The coffee mug would deform into its handle and the donut would be basically the same. So you wouldn't tell the difference and you'd be kind of, kind of freaked out. <laughs> I think one thing I think about at least with that is that it's not that the topologist can't tell, it's that they choose to look at what they have in common. So it's like what, what they'd have in common is that if you just had your chunk of putty that you had formed into a coffee cup, in order to make that work, you'd have to poke a hole into it to make the handle. And if you wanted to take a chunk of putty and make it into a donut, you'd also have to poke a hole into it. And so those are just both shapes that you can only make by poking holes in them. Right. And so in, in topology, which is uh, the subject that I've been studying for my PhD, 
you uh, you describe properties of the shape that basically don't change if you were to only allow yourself to stretch, only allow for continuous deformations. So that's fancy terms, but it means stretching um, without any breaking, without any poking of holes. And if you restrict yourself to those sort of sets of rules, then you'll find that uh, any single shape can be continuously deformed only into something that's got no holes in it, like a sphere, or it's got a hole in it so you can eventually squish it down down to a single hole, uh, like a donut, or something that's got two holes, like a Danish or something like that. Um, so, so anything, essentially any, anything. I think I need to pick up dessert on the way home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is that time. Huh? So, um, so you're looking at symmetries of these, um, objects or, um, solids. How, how do you do that? What are the methods you do? What do you do to solve this problem? That, I mean, that's a very challenging question. Yeah. Um, and that's been thought about, uh, for quite a long time. So back to your question about, uh, you know, thinking of symmetry in this sort of very rigorous mathematical way. Um, there have been people who have been uh, basically trying to formulate what it means to do a rotation about a single point and try and make it very, very precise. Um, and especially for some of the abstract surfaces that I worked with, um, those are, you know, not ones you can hold in your hand very easily and sort of easily describe what it means to rotate this object about a single point, let's say. Um, so you want to basically rely on some of that uh, mathematical machinery that goes into into play, um, and that's so that was what was done for quite some time. Um, and the surfaces I worked with, uh, a professor uh, from the University of Portland and his master's student uh, about five years ago had discovered a, a very explicit formula for ways to uh, rotate one of these abstract surfaces that I was haven't gotten gotten to yet, but uh, ways to rotate this thing you know, a certain number of times around, um, in a particular way. So again, also extremely precise. Um, and, uh, so basically building on various work that been done before using essentially group theory. So stuff that you learn, uh, tools in, in, uh, uh, a general mathematical curriculum yeah, for, for undergraduates generally. So if you were say an engineer wandering into a place where mathematics research is being done, what kind of things would you might you be surprised to see? One thing I think you'd be surprised to see is that we use a lot of computers. That's one of the things we use a heck of a lot. Um, you know, it's not just one or two people in their own offices and with you know the lights out and a chalkboard, you know, with stuff that's scribbled on it. Uh, we still use chalkboards, so that's no surprise. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, sometimes we use whiteboards. Uh, moving into the 21st century. Yeah, we're getting closer, <laughs> huh? Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but we tend to work a lot in groups. So it's, it's, uh, it's an extremely kind of social environment for the most part. Um, and you tend to have a, a good amount of collaborate collaboration with, uh, either people, um, you know, that are nearby kind of in the same cities or nearby cities, or even, uh, like I have collaborators that I've worked with, um, even overseas. So we meet via Skype or, we communicate uh, by email and so. and you how do you find like collaborators if they're if it's not like in your office or in your building or something how did you connect with them you know there there are various ways uh, for grad students at least um, I was lucky that um, I got into a program 
I brought the shirt here. You can see it says uh, Mathematics Research Communities. Uh-huh. Um, it's put on by the American Mathematical uh, Society, and they, um, for an entire week, it's a research workshop where you get placed into uh, groups, big groups, um, to try and solve uh, difficult uh, uh, math problems. And some of them have been conjectures, so open uh, problems that haven't been solved in mathematics for you know 50 to 60 years. Um, and so these are problems that people want to try to solve and uh, sometimes requires multiple people from various backgrounds um, just coming together and hoping for some kind of something to click. So I was lucky that I got into this program and have been kind of continuing these collaborations. Uh, or sometimes it's just there, you go to a conference and you start talking with people and uh, basically finding the, the right mentors. So I've been very fortunate in that sense. So I think it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about the life cycle of a mathematical idea. So you mentioned the word conjecture. Um, the, what what are kind of the steps that uh, it goes from just the void of ideas into an established theorem or like math fact? Yeah. So to discover something uh, true, you know, usually, you know, from your set of axioms, you know, you want to try and Axioms uh, being axiom being you know the the basic assumptions that you've that you've got into play. So uh, some of your assumptions might be you know we're just going to assume all the properties of real numbers. If we add numbers, we're not going to change any of those rules. Um, some people who work in abstract algebra or something very interesting like that, they'll change some of those rules up. So uh, a lot of times in math, you you want to you know change some of the assumptions that you've got. Um, so based on your assumptions, what kinds of things can you say? So that's kind of a, that's kind of vague, but usually you notice something in the world or you notice something, uh, you see some observations and you record them, um, as logically and as, and as precisely as you can. Um, when we were talking the other day, you mentioned a conjecture that was, I thought pretty easy to understand and surprising that there wasn't a proof of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's called the Goldbach conjecture. So it says if you take any even whole number, uh, at least four. So four, six, eight, ten. Any of those even numbers can be written as a sum of two prime numbers. A prime number being that no number divides it except for the number and one itself. So for example, two, three, seven, five, all those are all prime numbers. But if I take any even number, four or greater, like let's say I take six. Take number six, you can write as a sum of two prime numbers, namely three in itself. Or you can take, uh, let's see, I messed this up before, so <laughs> I'm trying to mess it up. Let's see, 10, you can do 7 plus 3, uh, 12, you can do 7 plus 5, 14 is 7 plus 7, and so on. Um, and so you can think, oh, maybe this is true for all even numbers. And so far, that's not been proven. It's a completely open problem. If you can figure it out, you would be probably pretty famous. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's interesting famous. because every number that you try, it happens to be true, yep. but that's not enough. Yeah, you can't try every true. number. The right. numbers just keep going. <laughs> yeah, they go for a long time. Ah. Yeah. Kind of scary. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's a few areas of mathematics that seem especially prone to having conjectures that are really easy to state and understand and turn out devilishly hard to prove. And it, it seems like your work has touched on a few of those areas. 
It it does a little bit. Um, for example, there was a Millennium problem. Uh, Millennium problems. There are ten of these. I think one had been solved now. Yeah. Um, I think maybe about fifteen years ago, and it was in topology. And the person who solved it ended up receiving a Fields Medal, which is the that's the Nobel Prize of yeah. mathematics, right? But sure you have is. to be under forty to or yes, yeah, yes, you do. Yeah. So, uh, a mathematician who discovered it was kind of what you expect. It was it was somebody who was kind of working by themselves in, you know, kind of a kind of a dark lair. But they used <laughs> but the interesting thing is that they use, you know, various um results that people have been proving for a long time. And uh he ended up solving it and rejected the money. <laughs> Rejecting the million dollars. I think he rejected the Fields Medal. Oh too. I remember this guy was an interesting one. Yeah. Yeah. Gr- yeah, very reclusive. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very, very interesting person. Um but it just goes to show there are some devilishly difficult problems that seem very, very, they're incredibly easy to state. In fact, in graph theory, that's a basic, that, that's a, a thing that happens quite often <laughs> is that you can easily state a, uh, what you believe to be true after checking it for, let's say a long, long time. And you say, it's gotta be true. But you know, to actually have a, a mathematical proof of this using only logic, which is kind of what our proofs look like. There's just all logical statements. You know, it's, uh, can be really tough to tough to actually get that uh, written out correctly. So this um, is such an interesting branch of research. Just I think um, most math it seems very abstract. So and the further you get, it, the more abstract it gets. So mm-hmm. how did you how did you get into this? Um, did you know what you were getting into? Oh no way! <laughs> <laughs> no way! No, not at all. I mean, so at least in math, it takes so long to get to a point where you say, yeah, this is the problem I'm going to work on, or this is the thing I want to study. Um, Because you have to get so much background information and learn different techniques from so many different uh, kinds of courses and different classes and such. And uh, on the other hand, you can also kind of go about it from a different perspective, maybe try and um, go in the applied math route. So what I did was was more of a pure math, so so more of the abstraction that doesn't necessarily have an immediate application. On the other hand, there are applied mathematicians who uh, in, take problems from the real world and try to f- use mathematics to either gain a better understanding of the problem or hopefully try and solve the problem in, in general. Uh, one of the millennium problems, million dollars if you can prove this, uh, it's called the Navier-Stokes equations, which describe uh, uh, fluid flow. So if you can prove, and go, go look up the statement if you like, uh, but it's basically, can you find uh, existence and uniqueness of, of a solution to these uh, equations that describe fluids? Um, if you can prove that, great, you'll get a million dollars. Which is so interesting because we use that equation to describe, like it's not proven yet, but we, um, are like I'm in engineering and we use that all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's interesting yep yeah yeah uh so if, if you're if you're inclined to go check out some problems that are currently unsolved go for it um because maybe you find something that's interesting and maybe that's how you think oh yeah maybe there's some kind of math that's related to this um this kinds of problems that you might you know feel yourself inclined to try and try and understand better so something like something like fluid fluid uh fluid flow would require knowing things like calculus, multivariable calculus, and even some physics as well. 
Did you have any people that you met early on that inspired you to push forward in mathematics? Yeah. Uh, there, even from, you know, when I was very little, uh, I had a lot of, uh, a lot of support, uh, both, you know, from teachers and also outside of the classroom in math in particular that I had a, a high school, uh, math teacher. Uh, he, he taught AP calculus. Um, his name is Mr. Dunya, and he, you know, he really embodied that kind of passion for teaching passion for mathematics and, um, for believing in his students. And I thought, yeah, okay, this is, this is one, this is a route that I can do and I can see how that can be such a really fulfilling, uh, life to lead. And then, so then I went to college and I studied, uh, decided to just end up studying just pure math and trying to learn as much math as I could. And I think that has a lot of benefits, you know, as you're learning more and more math, I felt that that would make me a better teacher because if I learned really advanced math then I can try to address the kind of questions that any student naturally would have. But I had a lot of really great mentors, a lot of really great professors, um, and both professors in math, um, and even professors in different, different, uh, different fields. And where did you go to college? I went to UC Berkeley. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so then you decided to go to, to pr- keep going, yeah. p- pursue a PhD at mm-hmm. Oregon State. What, what made you choose Oregon State? Well, so after, so after I got my, my bachelor's, uh, I stayed in the Bay Area for a year. I uh, worked in AmeriCorps, so I volunteered there. Teaching? Uh, yep. Yeah, okay. I taught. Uh, so that's a whole different thing. That was teaching little kids. I was teaching in elementary school. It was an after school program uh, in uh, West Oakland. And I taught for a year and we taught music. I taught the music actually. And, um, Interesting. yeah, that was, that was a really fun experience. Um, but so challenging. There's nothing that prepares you for trying <laughs> to teach, uh, <laughs> kindergartners. It's really, it's a really, uh, interesting experience. Um, but, uh, during that time I was applying to graduate schools and, uh, OSU was the only school that offered me uh, a tuition, uh, um, tuition waiver by being a teaching assistant. So a lot of people in math um, will be able to pay for their uh, graduate studies by teaching. And it's really great. It allows you to get a lot more experience um, teaching at the uh, college level, which is what I kind of felt myself more gravitated towards. You know, I wanted to be uh, that teacher, but also have a little bit of time to do some some math research. Cause I, I, at the end, I was you know more and more interested in that. Um, yeah, so just kind of over time as I was learning and doing more math, I thought, okay, I'm going to go to grad school, but I didn't really decide this until after I graduated. You know, it's not necessarily a really typical thing in math. A lot of people, um, will get their degrees and on the way and saying, all right, next step, go do a master's, go get a PhD, go be a professor. That's the route. But I didn't think I wanted to do that quite at first. And then I decided that I felt that that was going to be something worthwhile and fulfilling to do. So. Uh, when I was in AmeriCorps, I was applying and OSU was just seemed like the great place. Yeah. And now you're doing teaching and math, which sounds like the best combination. I know <laughs> it's a dream come true. Yeah. Um, so, and who are you working with here at Oregon State? Who's your advisor? Uh, his name is a uh, Ren Guo. Okay. He, he studies a uh, hyperbolic geometry. Okay. Yeah. So it's kind of, that's not quite exactly what I'm doing, but you know, he was the kind of professor who I could go to and say, look, I kind of like these subjects in math. I like studying shapes. I like studying topology. 
and I like doing things that are kind of like graph theoretic ones that have ones that involve nodes and edges that connect between nodes and, and properties of those. And so he suggested this particular topic and it's just been kind of growing since then. So been really grateful for that opportunity. So, yeah. So we have a tradition here on inspiration dissemination that we always ask our guests to impart some words of wisdom. Do you have some advice and for whom is that advice? So I've got two pieces of advice. Uh, one is never be afraid of asking for help. It's always, you know, especially when I was, you know, still kind of struggling with, you know, what would I like to do or what, what, I, you know, what do I want to study or where do I want to go? There's a good chance that there's somebody out there who would be willing to help you. And it doesn't have to be a written contract. You're a mentor. I'm a mentee. It doesn't have to be any of that. But chances are there's someone who would be more than willing to help you. Um, and so try and try and seek them out. It's, you know, especially if you're a college student, you know, thinking about, you know, what am I going to do after I graduate? Or maybe you're in middle school and high school and you're kind of have big questions about the world or things to do or just any, just really anybody. Um, the second piece of advice is uh, something I've been learning um, as I've been doing more math and doing a lot more teaching. You know, I really uh, try to emphasize how much fun I can have doing whatever it is that I have to do or that I want to do. You know, if especially for people who are maybe a little more uh, averse to doing math or feel like, you know, they're not good at math or they, you know, have, feel like they're going to be tested on it or something or feel like they're inferior or anything like that. You know, I always try to, you know, try and have as much fun as possible. You know, maybe that's difficult to do in some situations, but, you know, if, if you can prioritize, uh, enjoyment, I, I think it makes it a lot more bearable and I think it makes it uh, kind of exciting. Maybe you can almost be like a little kid and say, yeah, what about this? And what about that? And, you know, can I, can I make shapes with hexagons instead? Or can I play around <laughs> with little blocks like this? Yeah. Yeah. So that's also the reason why I got some just to kind of maintain that sense of fun. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's awesome. So we have another tradition, um, which is uh, our guest requests a song, and you have a song for us. Which one did you pick? It's City Looks Pretty by Courtney Barnett. I've been listening to this record, I think, nonstop. Um, uh, my partner and I, we went to Vancouver, uh, Canada a couple days ago, and we were just playing this on repeat over and over, and it was just, yeah, just really fantastic. This, all, this entire record, I... I'm just so impressed by it. So please go listen to it. It's really great. And this is the uh, second track off this album. It's really great. Yes. Well, if you're listening on the podcast, definitely go look it up. But if you're listening live, here it comes. <laughs> 